We just memorize, you are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. If you've heard me often enough, you probably hear me saying some things which are revolutionary, which are in the Bible, but which you probably haven't noticed. For example, when somebody asks me, who is the light of the world, I say me. Have you ever heard anybody say that? No, I say Jesus. I say, well, I'll show you from scripture. John chapter 9. Jesus said in verse 5, very simple for anybody who understands English to understand. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? It means exactly what it says, that as long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. And once he left, he gave that responsibility to us. And uh, he said that in Matthew 5, in the verse that we just memorized. So you put these two verses together. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And then he told his disciples in Matthew 5, 14, now you are the light of the world. So, why is it that we are hesitant to say, I am the light of the world? We don't want to take that responsibility. We want to live in our sin and say, well, we make excuses for it. But if you take this challenge, the New Testament is full of challenges. And I have to say that after I was born again, for nearly 16 years, I never took these verses as a challenge. I just thought they were there and said, okay, well, I'm never going to be like that. Just forget it. And thank God that Jesus saved me and I was going to escape hell. But there's a lot more in the Christian life than escaping hell. And one of the things that I began to seek earnestly was to experience the things that the apostles experienced, not unrealistic standards which nobody can attain to. But things which the Bible clearly commanded, and which people like the Apostle Paul testified to boldly. And I said, why don't I reach there? I mean, even if you say that Jesus was so perfect, but Paul wasn't perfect. He said, follow me. That Paul Christ. He set himself up as an example. And that's another thing I've almost never heard a preacher say in my whole life. Somebody said from a pulpit, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul said it. And I believe that every true servant of God should be able to say it. There's no boasting there. You can't accuse Paul of boasting when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me show you two verses where he said that. One is 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 and verse 1. Be imitators of me, or as the Corinthians version says, be followers of me as I follow Christ. Now, even if we can't say that, I want to ask you a question. Do you make that a goal? And say, Lord, at least 30 years from now I must get there. If you don't have a goal, you'll never reach it. 
And that's a tragedy with a lot of Christians. They read the scriptures and they say, well, I'm not there. But they don't even have that as a goal. No. Okay. If you uh, can't say that yet, you say, Lord, I want to make that a goal. Why shouldn't it be true? Well, you say, well, that was only Paul. Hang on, I'll show you what he said elsewhere in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, he said similar words, but he included others, not just himself. In Philippians 3, he said similar words, verse 17. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, join in following my example. I said, look at my example, Paul says. And not only me, observe those others around me who are walking according to the same pattern that you have in us. So, he's not saying I'm the only one. There are others, not everyone. You can't follow every Christian. In fact, most Christians you cannot follow. The Corinthian Christians were so carnal, you couldn't possibly follow their example. So I'm not saying that every Christian can say this, but I believe that God wants a remnant on this earth in every country where there are people, a few, who can say, follow me as I follow Christ. That does not mean you're perfect. It means you're living with a good conscience all the time. And that is possible. Perfection comes only when Christ comes again. So I'm going to show you what Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4. 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul says, first of all he says it's verse 3, it's a very small thing for me to be examined by you. He says, your opinion of me doesn't really make any difference, because you guys are carnal and you are not able to assess a spiritual man. Do you know that a person who is carnal will not be able to assess a truly spiritual man? He said that in chapter 2. He says, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, A natural or soulish man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. You cannot evaluate the spiritual man unless you're spiritual yourself. That's the meaning of those two verses. You see, that's where uh, people would say that when Jesus took a whip and chased people out, chased the money chains out of the temple, he lost his temper. He didn't lose his temper. Not at all. But a carnal man will say that. A spiritual man understands the reason behind it. And, uh, or for example, when he told his disciples, how long can I be with you, all you people of unbelief? He wasn't getting upset. But a carnal person said, ah, oh, Jesus got upset there. No, he didn't. The spiritual person understands it. When he turned around to Peter once and said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't just upset and calling him a bad word. No. It was a thoroughly spiritual statement. A spiritual man can understand it. Or, you know, people say we shouldn't criticize others. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You generation of vipers. How will you escape the damnation of hell? A carnal man cannot understand that. What I'm trying to say is, there are many things that Jesus did and said you'll never be able to understand until you long to be like him. Long to be spiritual like him. Then you find 
everything fits into its proper place. Uh, that's like saying a kindergarten student cannot understand complicated mathematical theories which only PhD students understand. That's understandable. It's the same way here. So, there are many things in scripture which we are challenged to in the New Covenant which is never found in the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, there's no commandment at all anywhere which says you shouldn't get angry or you should not lust after women. The commandments are all external. Don't actually commit adultery, don't actually commit murder. But there was no commandment of the in inward things at all. But when Jesus came, he changed it all. He said, you heard, Matthew 5, that you shouldn't commit murder. But I'm telling you, you shouldn't be angry. You heard that you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that you shouldn't lust after women. You heard that you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you to love your enemies. He changed the whole standard completely. And I want to say from my observation of Christians for 58 years, in every country in the world, most Christians are living according to the Ten Commandments. Or nine of them. They don't even keep the Ten. But that is the standard. The old covenant is the standard. When some preacher falls into adultery, he can't quote Paul's example or Peter's example because they never fell. Who does he quote? David. Well, he might as well quote Samson and keep living in adultery and keep serving the Lord. This is, a, this is just a classic example of how most preachers, I'm talking about preachers, are living in the old covenant and leading people to the old covenant. But you can't lead a person higher than you are yourself. And you cannot enter the new covenant until you long for it. There, is a, there are certain laws of God. For example, here is the law of God uh, in Matthew chapter 5. It says there, Matthew 5, Yeah. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. A person can acquire this new covenant standard of righteousness if he hungers and thirsts for it, not otherwise. In other words, if he doesn't have a passionate longing to reach this standard of new covenant righteousness, he'll never get there. And I say that to every one of you, my brothers and sisters. If you don't have a passionate longing, a thirst, and hunger, and when I say thirst, I don't mean, like all of us, maybe a bit thirsty right now and have a glass of water. I don't mean that type of thirst. I mean, if you had been wandering in the desert for four or five days, that type of thirst, where you'd pay any price to get a glass of water, you thirst like that, you will come to the righteousness that the new covenant speaks about. Otherwise, you'll never get there. You'll always be satisfied with a substandard, defeated life like people lived in the old covenant. And then you can say you belong to a new covenant Christian fellowship, but it's a farce. Because your life is not new covenant, your marriage is not new covenant, and you can glory in a name. You've got to be very, very careful that we really seek to live up to the name of the church we claim to belong to.
The standard of the new, in the new covenant is attainable. It is something you must believe is attainable. I mean, I often thought of it like this. I would never ask my children when they were small at home to do something which I know it's impossible for them to do. Carry a one-ton weight on their head. Which father would ever say that? And do you think the Almighty God, who is a million times better father than all of us, would ever, ever ask us to do something which he knows is impossible? It's the devil who keeps whispering in our ears all the time. That's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. And you don't realize how much we believe Satan when we read the Bible. So I want to just show you a few verses to for what it means. If I want to really be an effective part of a new covenant church, I must seek to live a new covenant life myself. And here is, I mean, I'm telling you what challenged me and I found as a born-again Christian, I was not living there. And that's what made me seek God and seek God. Till I got frustrated because I was not living there until God met with me mercifully and filled me with the Holy Spirit and showed me how it was possible. Here's a verse. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. Philippians 2 verse 14. It says, Do everything uh, we all know the meaning of everything, all things, without grumbling or complaining. I'm not supposed to grumble or complain one single second, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. you believe it's possible? Not in my home, not in my office, not when I'm driving a car on a busy street. No time. Or do you believe the Bible has got certain suggestions? There are no suggestions in the New Testament, only commandments. And there's a world of difference between a suggestion and a commandment. And I tell you this, I'm convinced that most Christians take these as suggestions. Suggestions for a better life. Do all things without murmuring. It's not. It's a commandment. And when you fear God, when you reverence God, to the point where you say, Lord, one word of yours is a command for me. You never give me suggestions. You, you give me a commandment. Everything I do must be crumbling, without crumbling, without complaining. And then I look at my life as a born young Christian and I saw what a lot of crumbling and complaining there was about so many things. About some comfort which is absent in the home or some food or something on the other. It's always, the devil's always got something to remind us of. And when you see that, you say, Lord, I want to be finished with this life. I want to live at the standard you have taught me in the New Covenant. I don't want to claim I belong to New Covenant Christian Fellowship. I want to live in the New Covenant, even if I'm not a part of this church. That's more important to me. Do all things, and then you say, how is that possible? Let me read further. This is the way, verse 15, that you can prove that you're a blameless and innocent child of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Just like we memorized just now. You are the light of the world. Well, so here it is, how you become a light of the world. You know how it is? You manifest yourself as the light of the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Why is it called a crooked 
and perverse generation around us in the context. It's a, we live in a world where everybody's murmuring and complaining. So I, I picture this like a, you know, you see the planet Earth from heaven, and God looks all over the planet Earth, and it's dark all over. Because everybody's murmuring and complaining. Down in the villages and the cities, the rich people, the poor people, there's murmuring and complaining in everybody's heart, in everybody's home. It's all dark. And in the midst of that, see a spot of light. One here, one there, one over there, a man or a woman who never grumbles or complains about anything. That's the meaning of that verse. And what I'm saying is not an exaggeration. Among whom you shine as lights in the world in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation of people who murmur and complain about everything and you prove yourself to be a child of God. So, I mean, if you go by that verse, how do you prove you're a child of God? If somebody was asked me, how do you prove you're a child of God in the midst of this wicked world? I said, because I never grumble and complain. Is that the answer you'd give? Or you say, because I accepted Jesus Christ 25 years ago. We have to come to the new covenant standard. And then, in case we give up on that and say, well, how is it possible? He's told us in the previous verse, verse 13, it is God, it is God who is at work in you to make you desire and do His will. Thank God for that. That even if I have a dis So before you go to the next verse, 14, which I just quoted, read verse 13. It is God who works in you and gives you this desire to live a life without grumbling and complaining. Certainly I got that desire and I got it from God. I didn't manufacture it myself. I'm a child of Adam. Adam's got no desire for that type of thing. But God worked in me and when it says in verse 13, God is at work in you, always, whenever it speaks about God working in us, is the work of the Holy Spirit. God in us is the Holy Spirit. It's not the Father. It's not the Son. He's up in heaven. God works in us means Holy Spirit. Always, always, always. The Holy Spirit is at work inside me. First of all, to give me a desire to live this life. And secondly, to make me actually live this life. But it's not going to be automatic. There's nothing automatic in the Christian life because God doesn't want to make us into robots. So what do I have to do? That's in verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Always read a verse in its context. I don't have to work out my salvation from going to hell with fear and trembling. Jesus already did that for me. I got to work out my salvation from verse 14, from deliverance from fear and grumbling and complaining. I want to be saved. Verse 12 and verse 14 put together. I want to be saved from grumbling and complaining in my life. And God's giving me that desire, verse 13, to be saved from it. And it says here, God will give me the ability also, verse 13. Then I must do my part to work it out. What God works in, verse 13, I've got to work it out, verse 12, with fear and trembling, lest I slip up. And I don't measure up to God's standard. Why is it so many people who nowadays claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit don't come to this life? Is the Holy Spirit working in them? To deliver them from all grumbling and complaining? No. Most 
people who talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, they only talk about speaking in tongues, which is a very good gift. I thank God for it. I've had it for many years. But that's not to me the mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in me to deliver me from all grumbling and complaining. And with fear and trembling, verse 12, I work it out in my life. In the moment of temptation, when I'm tempted to grumble and complain, the Holy Spirit says in, in, my, in my spirit, put that to death. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I put something to death. That's where I do my part. He'll give me the power. And he says, now you're the power, do it. And that's why Paul could say there later on, in, I mean, in other passages, how he keeps his conscience clear. Okay, let me show you one or two other things uh, which he says. New Covenant Standard, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord once in a while. Most Christians do it. Rejoice in the Lord 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Is that the meaning of always? Do you think the Holy Spirit made a mistake? I, I decided that I'm going to take the Bible seriously. A lot of people say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I say, you don't believe it. If you believe it, you take some of these verses much more seriously. Don't have this pious attitude saying, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe 66 books. It's all nonsense. If you're not actually seeking to live up to that standard. And I said, Lord, I want to take this seriously. And I, I was a Christian for years, and I was not rejoicing always. I was discouraged most of the time about something or the other. And I said, that's not God's will for me. New covenant is rejoicing the Lord always. There's no such verse in the Old Testament. There's no verse in the Old Testament saying, "Don't thou shalt not love, murmur, thou shalt not complain. No. Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. How could they do it? It's impossible. It's like we couldn't have lights burning like this when there was no electricity. They all had lamps and they would keep putting oil into it. But once electricity came, there's so many things we can do. That's something like, like the discovery of electricity. Revolutionized so many things in the world. It's exactly like that when the Holy Spirit comes within. And that's what the devil has blinded Christians to. We quote that verse saying, the God of this world, the God of this world, the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see Jesus Christ as their Savior. But I see the same devil has blinded the minds of most believers I have met that they don't see this wonderful life God wants us to live. That all darkness is driven out of our life completely. Rejoice in the Lord always, and he said, just in case you thought I made a mistake. Again I say, rejoice. I meant it. I meant what I said just now. Because I'm not exaggerating. And uh, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Wow. What a standard. I say, Lord, it really can bring me to a life where I'm completely free, to, free from anxiety. Do you believe a father would tell his young boy to carry one ton on his head and rebuke him when he doesn't? Is it a suggestion? Is this teaching of psychology? No. It's a command of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't take these things literally, you will, I tell you, in all your life you'll miss out on what God wants you to have on this earth. And the result will be, you'll miss out on what God wants to accomplish through you in other people. So, we've got to take it seriously. It doesn't matter if you have failed for years and years and years and years. 
If some of you will say, today, okay, today I'm going to begin to take this seriously. We need to understand now, I'm not saying we should not be concerned about various things. For example, uh, if your child is seriously sick, if you're not concerned about it, you're not a good father or mother. But to be anxious about that is quite another thing. To be anxious, oh, he's going to die. To be concerned, to do what you can, to take him to a doctor or a hospital, to be concerned is the right, but to be anxious is almost as though there is no God in heaven. I've come to see in crisis situations, most so-called believers behave like atheists. It's in a crisis situation that you discover whether a person really has faith in a father in heaven or not. So thank God for crisis situations that come in your life or your family that show you where you really stand. It's like a scan. It shows you in a moment, this is not what the life you're living. And if you face up to it, instead of saying, oh, well, we're only human. Well, we're not supposed to walk like other men. You know, one of the rebukes that Paul gave to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 1 Corinthians 3, one of his rebukes to them in verse 3 is, you guys are just walking like other human beings. Is that a crime? It certainly is. He says, you got jealousy, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, and you got strife. He says, you're just walking like other human beings who got jealousy and strife. You're not supposed to walk like other human beings. That's what he says there, you're walking like mere human beings. I'm supposed to walk like Jesus, not like mere human beings. He said, I'm the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And after I'm gone, you are the light of the world. And what did he go on to say from there? Matthew 5, verse... Uh, he said, you are the light of the world. And he said in verse 16 of Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men in such a way, Matthew 5.16, that they may see your good life and glorify not you. No, they don't glorify you. Glorify your Father in heaven who has enabled you to live that life. That when you, when they admire you for the wonderful life you live, to say you, you say that's what God did for me, he can do for you. You tell him, it's got nothing to do with me. I'm a child of Adam, just like you, having the same corrupt flesh in which dwells nothing good that you have. But God has worked in me and he can work in you to the glorify your Father in heaven. Some of them will have faith. Hey, if he can live like that by the grace of God, so can I. The one thing that came up in the New Covenant that the Holy Spirit gives us a word called grace. And grace is another very, very misunderstood word. And maybe you've heard many messages of mine on it, but I never want to I never want to stop emphasizing what grace really is. Grace is not the uh, unmerited favor of God. That's what they teach in Bible, Bible schools and that's wrong. Because I don't find that in teaching the New Testament. What does the New Testament say grace is? 
It says here in 2 Corinthians 12, the closest I can come to get a definition of grace from the Bible and not what people have invented. 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, when Paul had this thorn in the flesh, and God says, I'm not going to heal you. That's, that's another amazing passage. That Paul, who was probably the greatest servant of God on earth, had a physical sickness, which was an impediment. Impediment means a hindrance to his, you know, just to, to the way, just to live every day. And so he pleaded with God, please get rid of this. He even calls it in verse 2 Corinthians 12, a messenger of Satan. It was not from God. God allowed it as a gift, but it was a messenger of Satan that tormented him. Think of something that tormented, I don't know exactly what it was, but some type of physical sickness that Paul had, which kept on troubling him. He uses the word torment. Torment is a very strong word. Can you think of something that tormented you? And you pray to God, and you know God can remove it like that in one moment. And you pray, and He doesn't answer, and you pray again, and He doesn't answer, and you pray again. Finally, God answers, saying, No. So He did get an answer, and the answer was no. And he says, the reason I'm not removing it is because, Paul, you're such a fantastic servant of God. There's no one like you among all Christians on the earth. You stand in great danger of pride. You're in great danger of exalting yourself as if you're somebody. And that's a danger that anybody who's a little more spiritual than others faces. You have to watch out for that. If you are more spiritual than most others, you're always in danger of comparing yourself with them and thinking you're proud. And think of a man like Paul who was better than every other Christian on the face of the earth there in the first century. He was in danger of pride. And God was so desperate that, uh, God was so eager rather, that Paul should not become proud. Because there is a law of God that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's repeated twice in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5. It's a very well-known verse. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 7. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It works exactly like any other law. For example, the law of gravity. And it doesn't make a difference whether you're a proud believer or a proud unbeliever. God will resist you. It's not just that he resists the proud unbelievers, but he will not resist the proud child of his. It's like the law of gravity if you jump off the roof. The law of gravity does not only check out whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it just operates. Pull you down. It's the same way in this law. If you are proud, it doesn't matter one bit whether you're a believer or unbeliever. God will resist you immediately. And the way I see that is as if I'm humble, God gets behind me and keeps on pushing me forward. And then all the opposition of the devil and the world and the opposition of the desires of my flesh cannot stop me. I'll just move forward. And the more I humble myself, my movement will be like a rocket. Like a rocket towards Christ-likeness. But the moment I get a little pride, I have become so Christ-like. Pride in anything. And spiritual pride is the worst of the law. It stinks the most in God's eyes. Uh, pride because of education or wealth or 
Bible knowledge or preaching ability or maybe uh, you prayed for somebody and accidentally he got healed and you simply figured out things that you got a healing gift or so all types of things that can happen that God makes you, where the devil makes you try to be proud. Immediately, I, before you even realize it, you may not have realized, hey, I was proud that God's already recognized it and he's going to resist you. And God never wanted to resist Paul. Because he was so useful to him. And I want to say to you, God never wants to resist you and me. You and I are so useful to God. You think God's got millions and millions of servants on earth who are even interested in the new covenant? No. Very, very few. Even in the Bay Area. How many people do you think God finds who is really serious about living in the new covenant? I think very few. Very few in India. But God's very interested in those few. And those are the only few I want to gather together. I remember praying to God once in India. I said, Lord, I don't want to go throughout the 1,200 million people in India to find out who wants to go to heaven. No, that's not my gospel. Everybody wants to go to heaven. I've never met a single person in my life who wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, and I'm not interested in finding such people. I'm interested in finding people who want to follow Jesus now, before going to heaven. That is a very small number. And those are the only people I want to gather in my church. I'm not interested in the others. Because I'm not preaching a gospel of how to go to heaven. I'm preaching a gospel of how to be saved from sin. Not going to heaven. The first promise in the New Testament, Matthew 121, is you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. A gospel that's been perverted by Christianity to sound like this, Jesus, because he will save his people from hell. <laughs> Nowhere does it say Jesus will save his people from hell. It says he came to save his people from sin. I said, that's what I want. I'm not here to save people from hell. I'm here to save people from sin. And when they're saved from sin, they will automatically be saved from hell. So that is the gospel we preach in the New Covenant, that Jesus came to save people from sin. The sin of murmuring, grumbling, everything else. So, we need grace. We need God to support us. You know, the power of the devil is so strong. The world, influence of the world are so strong. I mean, just think of the day in which we live with the effect that billboards and what you see on the computer screen and all the media influences have on your mind. It's an onslaught of the devil in so many ways to pollute your mind with pride and sex and uh, money saying you, you can't live without this and you must buy this and you can't afford to live without this thing. And it's an onslaught. How in the world can you stand against this? Unless God supports you from behind. That's called grace. Where you can overcome the world, you can overcome the lust in your flesh, you can overcome the devil and everything else. But the moment you become proud, that support of God disappears. He comes in front and joins, as it were, the devil. The devil's pushing you back already, and the world's pushing you back with all its media presentations. And God also is joining that side and pushing you back. It's unbelievable, but true. Because he cannot change his nature. He resists the proud. Like I said, the law of gravity. No matter how much you pray from the roof, if you want to jump down, gravity will pull you down. All your prayers will not protect you from the law of gravity. And all your prayers will not give you grace if you are proud. 
It's as simple as that. You've got to be crazy to think that you can overcome gravity by jumping off the roof and praying. Even Jesus did not attempt it. And you've got to be crazy to think that God will give you grace if you're proud. Just as crazy. It's a law of God which does not change. He resists the proud. And so, God is eager to keep us humble. And one way he could keep Paul humble was giving him a sickness. A sickness which was pretty repulsive before others. I believe there's some type of infection in his eyes. I don't have time to go into that. You'll read that in Galatians chapter 4. But it, he wanted it to be free from it. He thought this is a hindrance to my ministry and the Lord says, no, it's not a hindrance to your ministry. It's actually a help. It's keeping you humble. Because they, they've seen how you've healed other people and you're not able to heal yourself. And it keeps you humble before, in your own eyes and humble before others. Therefore, I can support you all the time. And so that's what he told him in 2 Corinthians 12 when he got this messenger of Satan, verse 8. I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And the Lord said to me, no, it won't leave you. My grace is sufficient for you. It doesn't matter what your opposition is. My grace can tackle it. It doesn't matter how much gravity pulls you down, the power of this rocket can make you shoot up into space. Something like that. However much the power of sin and the devil and the world tries to pollute you and destroy your mind and make it filthy, it cannot happen if you get my grace. My grace is sufficient to handle all of that. Because my power, there you see grace is a power. Grace is the power of God through the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness to overcome anything that's preventing us from becoming Christ. It's the power of God that helps me to overcome everything that prevents me from becoming Christ. And it's particularly in relation to temptation. So that's one passage about grace and the other is in Hebrews in chapter 4, where we read about grace as well. It's important to understand this, to see that this is the provision God has made to help us to live at the standard he has prescribed in the New Testament. Philippians 4, you've got to read verse 16, where it speaks about the throne of grace and finding grace. You've got to read it along with verse 15 to understand it properly. Jesus is our high priest, verse 15. And essentially what he's saying there is, he can sympathize with our weakness. Not our physical weakness, that's not what he's talking about, the weakness that we feel when we are tempted. The context is, when you are tempted, you feel weak, that you fall into sin. You're tempted, this area, think of an area where you're frequently falling. That's your weakness. And it says here, the Lord understands your weakness because he has also been tempted in every single point, all things as you are. Think of any temptation that has come into your life and you can say, Jesus was tempted like that. Exactly like that. That is why he's called a forerunner. Not just the one who died for us on the cross, but one who lived 33 years being tempted, 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 overcame and Therefore, why is the word therefore in verse 16? 
Whenever you find a therefore in scripture, always find out what it is there for. Why is the word therefore over here? It's connecting it with verse 15. You see, but Jesus is tempted like, I am so what? Therefore, because Jesus was tempted like that and never sinned, therefore we can also come to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For many years I used to think mercy and grace are the same. I think a lot of Christians also think like that. You know, when we read scripture carelessly, we get all types of crazy ideas. But if we are humble enough to say, Lord, help me to understand the truth here. I find mercy is an Old Testament word. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. It's there always in the Old Testament. It relates to forgiveness of sins. Jesus never needed mercy, even for one second. He never sinned. But we need it all the time. To the end of our life, we need mercy because we may slip up and fall any time. So mercy is the first thing that we get when we come to God's throne. That's what we need. That deals with our past. Grace is what helps us to deal with the future. In a very simple way, mercy is to deal with our past and grace is to the future. We need mercy in the future as well. But grace is to help us to overcome sin. See, that's the reason for the therefore. Therefore, since Jesus was tempted exactly like you in every point and did not sin, therefore, you come to the throne of grace and ask the Father for what? For the same grace that Jesus got to overcome sin. To help you, verse 15, in your time of need. And your time of need in the context is temptation. It's not financial need. He's talking about temptation need here in verse 15 and 16. In the time of your need, what should you do? Cry out for grace. You know, just like Peter, you see the difference between Jesus and Peter walking on the water. It's a picture of overcoming sin. I told you that the power of sin is like the power of gravity. So the power of gravity was operating on Jesus when he was walking on the lake. But he couldn't pull him down. He just overcame that and walked on the water. Never slipped up one single moment. And he told Peter, you know, you can also do that, Peter. Just come out. Step out. And I, I see Peter there as a picture of one believer out of the multitude who sits in the comfort of the boat and say, yeah, I can walk like Jesus walked. And not many believers will say that. So Peter is an example of the one, one in the multitude who would say, I can walk as Jesus walked. Because I believe he's walking as a human being there, not as God. And he steps out and he finds he's overcoming gravity too. Until a moment when he turned his eyes away from Jesus and looked at the waves of the wind and then he began to sing. That's when we turn our eyes away from Jesus and believe some lie the devil tells us, no, 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 you can't walk like him, or you begin to compare yourself to somebody else and feel, hey, that guy's sinking, I'm walking. You begin to sink too, because you're comparing yourself to somebody else. The moment you turn your eyes away from Jesus and begin to look at circumstances, the four power of temptation, or something away from God's promise, you sink. But 
I like that word which says, as soon as he began to sink, that means when his foot maybe went in one-tenth of an inch into the water, he said, Lord, help me, save me. And immediately Jesus grabbed his hand. That's grace. That held him and prevented him from falling. That's what I see here. In the time of need, you ask for grace. Say, Lord, I'm sinking here now. Please help me. And he helped him to stand. So, because Paul began to experience this life, he could testify to others towards the end of his life. And here's part of his testimony, 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, Thanks be to God. Again, the word always. Always means 24-7. And these things are not written lightly. It's inspired Holy Spirit scripture. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You go to Paul and say, hey Paul, do you really mean that? 24-7? They're always living in victory in Christ? He says, absolutely. I couldn't do that without, if I hadn't got grace. If, I, if God began to resist me, I'd sink the very next second. But God is so zealous to preserve me in humility, if necessary, by giving me a sickness or some type of physical difficulty to keep me humble and dependent upon Him. And therefore, I, I keeps me aware of my need to always seek for help. It's not a strain. The life of Jesus, there was no strain at all. The life of Jesus is described as a life of arrest. And people who have not understood this life think, oh, this must be a terrific strain. You always got to, always got to cry out for grace. It's not like that. The clearest example I can use of the spiritual life is breathing. Is breathing a strain? Not at all, unless you're sick. But otherwise, we, we breathe even when we're asleep, we're breathing. It's not at all a strain. And I see breathing as the perfect example of the spiritual life. Jesus' life was completely free from strain. There was a battle, sure. But there was no unrest. So, that is the life that Paul came to. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, in victory, in Christ. And because he leads us in victory, he's manifesting through his life the aroma of Christ in every place. That verse, that phrase has been a tremendous challenge to me. Lord, I want people to see the aroma, smell, the aroma of Christ in my life, wherever I go. I want them to see the gentleness of Christ with sinners like adulterous women or the five times divorced Samaritan woman. There was a gentleness about Jesus with these people and also the aroma of Christ of his fierce opposition to people make money in the name of religion. That is also part of the aroma of Christ and I want people to sense that in me the fierce opposition to any preacher who's trying to swindle people of money in the name of Jesus. And if you don't have that, one part of the aroma of Christ is missing in you. If you always want to be gentle with crooked preachers, sorry, you're not like Christ. Not at all. So it's not just always being very gentle. 
you got to be gentle with some and you got to be pretty hard on some others. That's the aroma of Christ. And Paul was wanting that aroma of Christ, the perfect life that Jesus lived, to be manifested through him. It's very important, brothers and sisters, to see what the spiritual life really is. I, I used to be confused about it because I heard so many different people talking about being filled with the Spirit till I saw that the perfect spiritual man was Jesus Christ. And I saw he was so different from a lot of people who claim to be spiritual today. For, example, for one thing, he never spoke in tongues. Can a man be filled with the Spirit and never spoke, speak in tongues? Perfect example is Jesus Christ. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a new covenant. His Spirit was within a new covenant fullness of the Spirit. And he never spoke in tongues. Then I say, why did God do that? I, I analyzed why God gave me the gift of tongues. It's because of our limitation of our mind. Because we live in a, we've been corrupted by the flesh so much. Jesus was not corrupted. So he didn't need that gift. It's a help in prayer because of the weakness and corruption of our mind. That's about all there is to it. But that has nothing to do with his character. His character was perfect. The nature of God and it did not require the gift of tongues at all. And what I see in Jesus there is a perfect reflection. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why he told Philip, he said, you don't need to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So couple that sentence, you know that in John 14. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then later on he said, as the Father sent me, What's the rest of that verse? So send I you. So that you should be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen what Christ is like. You see the connection? He who has seen me has seen the Father. As the Father sent me, I send you. That's the challenge. My dear brothers and sisters, how many of you even see this as a challenge? Even if you haven't got there, we all acknowledge we haven't got there, but Lord, this is a challenge I'm working towards. The people who see me and hear me will see something of what Jesus was like. In his gentleness, in his strictness, and in my case, since I'm preaching, I say, Lord, they must have some idea of how Jesus preached when they hear me preach. One of the challenges that comes to me as a preacher is Jesus was never boring. Never. I can't imagine Jesus. You know that he, he preached to two people for about three hours. Do you know where that is? After the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus. Uh, it, he said, where does it say for three hours? Well, it says that the distance was about seven miles. So I assume that it must have taken two, three hours. Two, three hours. And he was expounding the scripture all the way. Imagine listening to a sermon for three hours. And you know what they said at the end of it? Our hearts were burning. I said, wow. It must have been fantastic listening to Jesus expound the scriptures. And why not say, Lord, I want to press on to that and become like you. Okay, maybe I start with one minute, five minutes, ten minutes. You don't jump to three hours so quickly. But... Lord, I want to press on to that, or I never want to 
make anything else my standard other than Jesus. Anything here is preaching or living or compassion to adulterous people who fall into adultery or compassion to five times divorced Samaritan women or lepers or I want to be like Jesus as far as possible. I may not have the gifts he has. Gifts is a different thing. When Jesus said follow me, he was not talking about walking on water or exercising his gifts. He was talking about character. When Paul said follow me, he wasn't telling us all to be apostles. Go plant churches. No. It's life. There's a difference between life and ministry. And we are called to follow him in his life. See, another area where I find tremendous difference from the, from Jesus as a preacher and what I see today, tremendous, tremendous difference, is whenever he healed people, whenever he healed people, he almost always said, don't tell, it, don't tell anybody about it. Don't go advertising this. Have you ever seen a so-called healer today say that? No. What do you see on television? A fellow is 10% healed from some hearing defect and they make him stand before a mic and make him confess. I could hear only 80%, now I can hear 90%. What happened? What is this? It's an absolute disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. This type of nonsense which goes in healing in the name of Jesus. Why was Jesus hesitant to let anybody know about his healing ministry? He didn't come for that. You know, sometimes in our thinking, we think uh, that if only somebody could be healed, what fantastic differences would come. Because there are cases of people in the Acts of the Apostles, they were healed and as a result of which people came to Christ, I know. But times change. And we got to see what is God's will and I'm sure that, see, I see it like this, in the unreached places in India, there are genuine healings that are taking place even today by ordinary believers. Because there are places where the gospel is going for the first time. And when you read the Acts of the Apostles, don't forget that it was the gospel going for the first time to different places. That's why you see there was healings, there were healings, and it's happening today also. Because Jesus said that when you go out and preach the gospel to all preachers, and they should lay hands on the sick and they should be healed. But once the church is established, you don't see that so much. And that's not surprising. It's not because of lack of faith. No. Because you come back to what Jesus said. Don't tell anybody because that's not my call. I'll tell you my own testimony. I have experienced one or two remarkable healings in my own life, personally. But I prayed to God very much, particularly when I saw all the sick people there were, and when I'm on God's people, and I said, Lord, will you please give me a gift of healing? I promise you I won't take one cent from anybody. And if you say that I should only pray for believers, I'll pray only for believers. Whatever you tell me, I'll do. And uh, please, care. not because I want to be known as a healer, but because I, I want your people to be healed. That's all. There are people in our church who are sick. And I want them to be healed. And I've prayed a number of times for it. But I've never heard it. He said, I've called you to be a teacher. I'll give you a gift for that. And I said, Lord, why not? And the Lord said, if you have a genuine gift, I know you'll never practice fake healing, but if you exercise a genuine gift of healing, 
word will get around no matter how much you try to hide it. Your phone will be ringing day and night. You won't have any peace in your home when the number of people come to see you. Your church will be flooded with thousands of people. 99% of them don't want to be disciples. You'll never be able to make disciples. You'll never be able to build the church I want to build. I did not come to heal the sick. I came to build the church and I've called you to build the church. Then I was arrested. I said, okay, Lord, I understand. I see that you've called me to make disciples. That's what you wanted me to go all over the world. You want your children to go all over the world and make disciples. So, I'm content. I do what the Bible says when the Bible says that if somebody is sick, an elder must go and pray for them. And sometimes God heals. That's in his sovereignty. Sometimes he doesn't. I do my part. But disciples, that I'm committed to. I know God, if the person wants to be a disciple, I believe he can become a disciple. And the disciple is primarily these three conditions that we used to preach right from the beginning in our church. Number one, it's all in Luke 14, 26 to 33. Luke 14, 26 to 33. Number one, to love Jesus more than father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, supremely. That means nobody on earth must I love more than Jesus Christ. Nobody. I must be willing to offend my wife, my children, anybody on earth when it comes to following Jesus. <clears throat> Secondly, I must love Jesus more than my own self-life. And that comes up in times of temptation. When I'm tempted to, somebody gets angry with me and the self says, give him a piece of your mind. Holy Spirit says, no. Put that to death. That's it. And I must do it consistently. It's not something I can do once for all. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross every day. And many times a day. That's the second condition of discipleship. If a person doesn't want to do it, he cannot be a disciple. And the third is to love Jesus more than my possessions. I can have things on earth. I can own them. They can be registered in my name, but I must not possess them. I must love Jesus more than all those things. That if he wants to take it away, he can take it away, Lord. But I will not possess anything as mine. Those are the conditions of discipleship. And then... So when we started our church uh, in Bangalore, two things that the Lord taught us to emphasize. One was these three conditions of discipleship. And the other was Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Son of the Mount, which also was very little preached. And the reason for that is, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, we read that Jesus said these things. It's sort of a description of what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, a narrow gate that leads to a narrow way. That's what he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 17. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is small, verse 14, Matthew 7, 14, that leads to life, and very few people find it. What is this narrow gate? Narrow gate? Exactly what he preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So that is what I was called. I said, if you want to build a church, you've got to preach Very few people will come. If you want a big church, don't ever preach Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
But if you want to preach the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life, to eternal life, this is it. So we decided to preach it. We were not at all bothered about numbers after that. We said, Lord, we want to find people who are interested in walking in the footsteps of Jesus in our way that leads to life. So we find that the Christianity described in the New Testament is very little seen in most Christian churches today. I, I, I don't find people emphasizing the Sermon on the Mount consistently. Consistently. There are Bible studies people take on it, but to ensure that people are led into that life. It's not just saying, okay, I've taken a Bible study over three months of the Sermon on the Mount and finished with it. No. I find we have to keep on preaching consistently. For example, take just one, I'll just take one verse and close. In Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. For there is the kingdom of heaven. And I have got to teach people to be poor in spirit. And I like the amplified translation of it, or paraphrase of it. Blessed are those who rate themselves as insignificant. Let me ask you honestly, how many of you really rate yourselves as insignificant in the church or in the world? Blessed are those who rate themselves as insignificant. Whole kingdom of heaven is theirs. That is genuine humility. Consider others as more important than yourself. That's where you begin. I just mentioned that to show how little the Sermon on the Mount is preached in most of Christendom, how little we hear it. And there lies the reason why we haven't found that narrow way that leads to life anymore. Those who are serious about it have found it. And it's transformed their life, it's transformed their married life. I found it changed my life, it changed my married life, it changed the way I brought up my children. It changed everything, it changed my attitude to money, it changed my attitude to everything around. It made my life supremely happy. I want to encourage you to go that way. It's probably had some prayer. Heavenly Father, please help us to be gripped by the truths you want us to be gripped by, to walk the way you want us to walk every day of our life. Give us grace, each one, to face up to what you show us never to be discouraged because of what we see in ourselves, but to have faith and believe that you love us so intensely that you will work in us and accomplish what you want. Help us, Lord, each one of us, to have faith for that because you love us. You can give us power, grace to overcome everything we face and to be the light of the world as you want each one of us to be. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.